when Ants was about to go and he was asking some of us to, to preach, he asked me to do a couple of weeks during the holidays, I said to him, what would you like me to preach about? And he said, well, you can preach about anything you like. Uh, we've been doing some uh, series of, of teachings, and he said, you can teach anything you like. And, and that's sort of a two-edged sword, because there's a side of me that says, thank you for trusting me to, to preach about something that would be okay to preach about in the church. But probably I find preaching easier when someone says to me, would you speak on this particular issue? And I can go and research that, and I can go and pray about that, and I can go and dig into that subject, and I can find something to bring to illuminate the topic. When it's left to me and left to my own devices, I begin to, to second-guess myself. I think, well, I'll, I'll talk about this, and I think, no, that's maybe not relevant at this time. Well, I'll talk about that, and, and I'm, I need to become quiet before God and seek His face as to what to, to speak and preach about. And in doing so, what came up was that I, I felt that I'd like to spend some time in the two weeks that I'm, I'm, I'm going to be preaching um, speaking about some things from the book of James. But that brought up a little bit of a, of a challenge, because the book of James is quite a controversial book. I'm not sure if you're aware of that, but someone as illustrious as Martin Luther uh, referred to it as the epistle of straw. Um, he even questioned the validity of the book of James being included in the New Testament canon, because he saw it, he withdrew that opinion later, but initially that was in his commentary of the Bible, and he saw it as being almost a, a challenge to the teachings that Paul had done in the book of Galatians, which, as you will know, we've spent quite a lot of time teaching about in Forest Town Church and to spend many months preaching from the book of Galatians because the book of James is about doing stuff. And we've spent quite a bit of time talking about the fact that we are free from the law. We are free. We are saved by grace through faith, not of our works that any man should boast. That was the joyous thing that Martin Luther had discovered in his studies. That's what kick-started the Reformation. And so Luther, in his joy of finding the, the, the message of grace, when he read the epistle of James, he initially referred to it as the epistle of straw, and he said that James had built on the solid foundation of the gospel was something that was not continuing the message. As he studied further and, and others have studied further, it does put a different context on it. But for me, in thinking, okay, I'd like to go into James, I thought, well, it does almost seem like a contradiction to some extent of what we've been teaching over the last while, because we've been teaching grace. We've been teaching freedom. We've been teaching faith and, 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 and a relationship with God that's not dependent on our performance. And so I thought that this week... And I will really try to be brief because I know the youngsters are in. I just try and put it into context. Um, and in doing that, I ask myself the question, so, so we got a great church, so what? Because I do believe we have a wonderful church. In their absence, I would love to commend Ant and Helen for the job that they do. They do a great job. We are blessed. We are, we are blessed mightily. As a, as, as a church family. If you think about it, what, what do we do at the church? Well, we just mentioned this preaching and teaching. Good, solid preaching and teaching from God's Word. And picked the bones of the book of Galatians, and we've moved on, and we've been teaching about the Holy Spirit, and we get solid food presented to us on a regular basis. It's great. We worship together. We've tried to to teach and to, and to demonstrate 
worship and, and to create times in which we are, have the opportunity to seek God's face, to, to move those things aside that in perspective block out the mountain in the background and to look on the face of God. We fellowship together. We eat together a lot. I don't know if you've noticed. We eat before services, after services, sometimes during services. We have barbecues. We have breakfasts. We, have, we, we like to eat together. We like to fellowship together. That's great. We get together outside of church times. We have life group opportunities. We have weekends away. This is good. This is good. The church reaches out through activities with the youth, through uh, organizations like STEP and so forth, through what the church does in its own outreach. We support work like Andy working in Romania. I was really moved by the, the photographs and, and the images of the area that he works in over in Romania and the work that they're doing. We send teams over to Cambodia. We support people financially. The church reaches out as well. These are all good things. In fact, this is what the church should be doing. I'd like you to have a look at Acts chapter 2 uh, and verses 42 to 47 if you have your Bibles available. And it talks about what we call the first church the church in Jerusalem after Pentecost when the church had begun to grow. And it says this is what the church did. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who was in need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That was the early church. Can you see a lot of touch points in what we're doing here in our church family? We fellowship together, we break bread together, there's teaching, there's prayer, there's worship, there, there's, there's a, a supporting of one another. we blessed. we blessed. But it's for a purpose. It's not just for doing those things. We need to ask ourselves, what is our, our governing principle? What is, what is our purpose for being here? What is our purpose for being a church family? And in doing that, I was drawn to the fact that, in fact, what we call the first church wasn't really the first church. There was a precedent of a church that had been established even before the Jerusalem church. Its pastor was a young man called Jesus of Nazareth. Its congregation was a group of men and women that had gathered around him in a ministry led by him. It functioned for about three years. And from that came what we call the first church. There's a lot of precedent that we can take by looking at the life of the disciples in a very simple way. I just want us to look this morning at what it meant to be a disciple and what the process was in being part of the really very first church pastored by Jesus himself. And so let's look at the development of disciples. If you think about it and if you look through the Gospels, Jesus called a disparate group of people. He names them, but they were all very different. They had different gifts and different talents and different personalities. There was a core group of hardworking, decent fishermen. Um, possibly not highly educated, maybe quite simple in their lifestyles, but dedicated, hardworking people that he called. There was a very sophisticated, very wealthy crook, a tax collector. There was a political zealot. And there were a bunch of people that we don't know a great deal about. But he called them, and they began to move with him as his disciples. And I just tried to think, as I was thinking about speaking this morning, what, 
was the actual process? What really happened? Well, in the beginning, if you think about it, what did the disciples do? They just kind of watched. They fellowshiped with Jesus and they kind of watched. He did everything. In the beginning, they would travel around and he was going into synagogues and he was preaching and occasionally there were miracles and he was healing people. And they were there because they believed in him because they had committed their lives to him and they had decided to follow him and they were enjoying the fellowship that they had with him. But a lot of what they were doing was observational. They were learning by observation. They were watching what he did. They were watching the way that he lived. They were listening to the way that he spoke and they were seeing the way that he went about his father's business. They were, they were absorbing his priorities. They were absorbing his, his values by being in his presence and being close to him. And I imagine that any one of them, when they first joined, there was a period of time in which you got to know everybody else, and you got to understand everybody else, and you got to learn to tolerate everybody else, and to contribute into the conversations and into the fellowship and the friendship. And you didn't become a disciple of Jesus Christ, and the next day you were healing thousands of people. In the beginning, there was a time of learning and of growing. That then, that development and teaching began to become more formal. In several places, including Matthew uh, chapter 5, you have Jesus teaching his disciples. The famous teaching the Sermon on the Mount, if you read carefully at the beginning, although lots of people were standing around listening, he was talking to his disciples. When he said, blessed are you, and this happens, and that happens, and this happens, and that happens, and he talked about judgment and so forth, he was speaking to his disciples. He was now into a formal teaching of these people. If you look at the Sermon on the Mount, it's, a, it's a, an order group for an army before they go out to fight. It's telling them, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it. This is the kind of lifestyle we're going to live. These are the values we're going to have, and this is, how, this is how it's going to work. There was formal teaching that came into the life of the disciples. You know, we talk about them quite often as being simple fishermen. That's how they started. They didn't finish up as simple fishermen. They had three years constantly in the presence of Jesus Christ. There's no theologian walking this earth who spent his life studying at Oxford, Cambridge, or anywhere else in the world that you'd like to measure, who understood the person of Christ and the Word of God better than those simple fishermen did by the end of the time that they were with him, because he taught them. And he taught them by speaking to them, and he taught them by demonstrating it. And there was a reality of, we are growing, and we are expected to understand more. Sometimes, he kind of eggs them on. He says, where is your faith? Oh, you little faith. He's not being unkind. He's not rejecting them. He's saying, come on, guys. You need to be moving on here. This is something you should have understood by now. There's an expectation from Jesus that they grow in their understanding of what he's about and what he's doing. They haven't come along just for the right. They are not there to be his cheerleaders. They are there to be prepared and to grow. That's demonstrated when we go a little bit further. Um, I've lost a particular scripture, but I will go to the next one. Um, Luke chapter 10, uh, verses 1 to 4. It says, calling the twelve to him, because one of the things he did, and he did run about the time of the sermon, he appointed twelve people that he called apostles. 
Now, that's bringing some structure into what he's doing. He's saying, I'm appointing some leaders amongst you. And he chose 12 men and he said, these are my apostles. These are my... Now, when you appoint people to lead, it's because people need to be led somewhere. It means there's a task. This is not just a random action that was taking place. Jesus is bringing some structure to his church. He's bringing some structure to his group of people. And he's doing that because there's a job to do. Because there's stuff that needs to be done. And so he brings these 12 people and he begins to spend some more time with them. He begins to input more directly into their lives. You'll often see when Jesus in the New Testament goes somewhere where he only wants a few people with him, he takes Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. But the other 12 are always constantly around and fulfilling a leadership position. And he begins to impart more into them. And this is demonstrated in Luke chapter 10, verses 1. Uh, reading through to verse 4 and then later on as well. It says, Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and give them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. And they went out and preached that people should repent, and they drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. The next step in Jesus' process with this church that he's got is he, he begins to establish some people that he's teaching quite intensely, and then he says to them, right, now it's time to do it. You've seen me do it. You've heard me do it. You understand what I'm about. You understand my value structure. You understand my purpose. You understand where I'm going. Now you need to go out and do it. And it's not an easy road for them. He doesn't make it easy. He says, you're going to go out there with as little stuff that, as possible with you. You're going to have to trust in me for your provision, for your protection. For the, and the response will not always be easy. So he sets them quite a profound challenge. And he sends those 12 out, and they go out, and they see the power of God working through them because they have been sent by Jesus. The process is continuing. They came in, they fellowshiped, they, they, they spent time around him, they enjoyed his presence. Then he started teaching them formally. First they began to learn incidentally by observing, then he begins to formally teach them, and now he says to them, it's almost like an examination, almost like a test. Go out and do it. Not to prove themselves to him, but to show them themselves what God could do through them. And he sends them out. And the process continues. In verse, uh, where am I? He sends out 72, and I've got my, there it's Mark chapter 6 and verse 7. I have confused myself in my notes this morning. But he goes on and he sends out 72 to do the same thing. Now it's interesting, there were 12, and later he sends out 72. And I believe that everything in the Bible has been put there for a reason. The fact that the detail of there being 72 is put there, there must be some significance to that. And so I wondered, what's the significance of there having been 12 and then having 72 go out later? And simple mathematics says to you that 12 goes into 72 six times. And you wonder what's the significance of that? I wonder, the Bible doesn't tell me this, but I wonder when those 12 came back. Did Jesus not say to them, right, each of you take six guys and begin to disciple them. Begin to share with them what you have seen, what you have done. Begin to put input into their lives. In other words, the taught become the teachers. Until such a time as he's got 72 people ready to send out and he says to them, now you go out. 
And they go out again and experience the power of God in what they're doing. If you continue to read about Jesus' activities in the Gospels, you'll find that the disciples are more and more involved in the process of what he's doing. When he feeds the 5,000, the food is multiplied, he gives it to them, and the multiplication continues as they go out and feed the crowd. They're involved in the miracles. They begin to play a role in organizing and administrating his life, sometimes well, sometimes not so well. He turns children away and he says, no, let them come to me. But they're involved. They are no longer just observing. They are no longer just sitting with him next to the fire. They are no longer just hearing stuff. They are putting into practice the things that he has taught them. And it culminates when we get to the end of Jesus' life and he's ready to go back to heaven in what we call the Great Commission. Let's look first of all at Acts chapter 1. And verse 8, it says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. And you, Tim was talking about last week. And you will be my witnesses in uh, Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to ends of the earth. Now they get commissioned for a further outreach. They get given authority to continue on their own. There's a further commission that we read about. There's the, the uh, instruction in Matthew chapter 28. It says, then Jesus called them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very ends of the earth. There is now an instruction to take this authority which Jesus has had given to him. It's imparted to them and they are told to go and do two things, to be witnesses to convict people of the truth of Jesus Christ. You do that by being a witness. And then to make disciples. In other words, to do what? To continue the process that has been started with them. To be effective in carrying on the process which has been started in their lives. They're not told to just go and make converts. They are told to go and make disciples. People who will continue the process. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you're sitting here this morning and you are saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, that has happened because somewhere in your life somebody did something to make sure that you heard that there was salvation in Christ. Somebody did something. Maybe they preached. Maybe they shared with you as a colleague at work. Maybe they placed the Bible in a hotel room. Maybe they wrote an article or spoke. But you are here if you are somebody who has accepted Christ. You have accepted Christ because somebody did something about the fact that they were saved by grace through faith. They didn't do it to earn their salvation. They didn't do it to justify the existence in the kingdom of God. They didn't do it to earn the love of God. Those things are given by grace freely, and we don't ever need to earn them. They did it in response to the fact that they realized that we have a job to do. We have a job to do. The challenge I want to offer you this morning as we're heading towards some pretty hard-hitting stuff in the book of James next week is, where are you in the process? That's the challenge I have to issue to myself. I want you to see it in the context of 
There is nothing that you need to do ever to earn the love of God. That's the mystery of the magnificence of God. There is nothing that you need to do to earn His love. There is nothing that you need to do to earn salvation. There is nothing that you need to work at to retain that salvation. It's given freely and permanently when you acknowledge the Lordship of Jesus Christ. What we've taught from Galatians, that is true. Every word of it is true. But you should be doing something about it. You should be doing something about it, not to earn your salvation. You should be doing something about it because there are people who need you to be doing something about it. And so I put that challenge to you. Where in that process are you sitting? Are you still observational? Are you enjoying the fellowship and the presence of God and the fellowship of the saints? We should all do that all the time. But have you pressed pause? And said, okay, I'm just going to, this is where I'm going to hang. Can I tell you what's going to happen? God's going to love you every much, every bit as much as he would if you were very, very active in serving him. He's still going to love you the same if you just press pause. We're going to love you the same as well. You're not going to lose your salvation. You're heading for heaven. But somebody who needs to hear from you is not going to hear from you. Somebody who needs you to be the person that started the process is going to have to wait until somebody else does it and somebody else steps in. And I'm not pleased. This is so important. We don't want to preach grace for months and then turn to putting guilt on you. It's not about guilt. It's not about pressure. It's about why wouldn't you want to? Why wouldn't you want to? You know, Tim used the scripture last week. Let me see where I've got it. Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. In the old authorized version, that do your best is translated study. Prepare yourself. There is a challenge from Paul to Timothy. He says to him, Make yourself effective, make yourself efficient, prepare yourself, study yourself, get yourself ready so that you can do the work. And that says to me that if I desire to, to be the full person that God would like me to be, it does require me doing something. It does require me doing something. It requires, first of all, that I begin to study to show myself approved to to understand the Word of God so that I can share the Word of God. To, to, let me ask you this, because I, I run a school in which we, we are openly Christian, and I often challenge young people. I say this to them. If somebody out of the blue came up to you at your football club, at your netball club, at, at your wherever you are, and said to you, I've heard you're a Christian. Tell me about Christianity. What would you say? Have you thought about that? Studying to show yourself approved is not only going to theological college and learning about eschatology and homiletics and, and, and things like that. It's about saying, so what do I believe? Thinking about it, articulating it, finding in God's Word how I can demonstrate and back up what I'm saying and having the ability to be a witness, to share quite simply what's happened in your life. Are you ready to do that? 
You know, one of the saddest moments, I share this often because it stuck with me so much. Many years ago in a different church, I was in a group of, of leaders who were gathering together for a particular thing, and somebody said this, and this was somebody who was leading a home group. He said, you know, someone came to me at work today or this week, and they said, you're a Christian, aren't you? And I said, yes. And they said, you know, I've been struggling with this Christianity thing. I need to know more about it. And he said, so I told them to come to our conference next week. And it broke my heart. Broke my heart. Because that person didn't feel that they were confident enough just to tell them about their own walk, to share anything with that. To my knowledge, that person never came to the conference. Are you ready to do something? Are you, have you pressed pause? God loves you. We love you. You're going to heaven. Or have you stepped forward and said, I'm taking the next thing. I'm, I'm preparing my heart and my mind so I can be a witness. So I can be somebody who can share, at the very least, my own story with any, you know, the, the, the other side of that was at a, a breakfast with a bunch of guys, a prayer breakfast yesterday morning. One of the guys was saying he was at a wedding. And the bride arrived in a beautiful Rolls Royce. And, and he went over, he's quite a gregarious guy, and he was chatting to the chauffeur who told him that, uh, I think, Jackie Collins and all sorts of famous people had driven in this Rolls Royce. And the wedding was going on, and he got into a conversation with the chauffeur and they began to walk around the beautiful venue with the lake and they landed up walking around the lake and in the course of it somehow he landed up sharing his testimony with him somehow he just landed up sharing the love that he had for Jesus Christ with this guy and he didn't lead him in a sinner's prayer or lead him into a commitment to Christ but he shared his his faith with him just in a casual conversation why just because that's what his heart is he's just ready to do that he didn't beat the guy up with it, but he was just ready to share because he has taken some time to be ready to diligently show his commitment. In Hebrews chapter 5 and verses uh, 12 to 14, the writer says this, In fact, by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you in the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being, is, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. What I'm saying is, guys, as we move into the book of James, there is a biblical precedent. It's not in contradiction of Galatians. It's not in contradiction of preaching the freedom of grace. It's not in contradiction because this is about something more. This is about saying, okay, so now I'm going to heaven. So I'm loved by God. I'm in the fellowship of the family. I'm enjoying the communion of the saints. I'm enjoying What am I going to do next so that other people can share in this joy? What am I going to do, however small it might be? What's the next step that I'm going to take? I want to say this to you. We, we trust God that we're going to grow as a, as a community, that the gospel is going to go through this city and surrounding cities, that people are going to come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior in increasing numbers. Because we don't just want to fill this church with people who've recycled from other churches. We want to bring new people in as well who've never known Christ. Can I say this to you? 
That's not going to happen because Ant preaches good sermons. He does. But we're not going to fill this church because Ant preaches good sermons. It's not going to be filled because Tim leads worship as beautifully as he did this morning. These are things that are wonderful. But it'll happen when each of us individually begins to make a difference. Does that mean you've got to jump on tube trains with a megaphone and start preaching? Probably not. Probably not. Although I, I do admire the courage of people who do that. But if you look at that extreme and you say, well, I'm not going to do that, all I'm asking you is, so what are you going to do? So what are you prepared to do? So what do you feel comfortable doing? And would you be prepared, not because you have to, not because you're obliged to, not because there's a law that says you have to, but would you be prepared to step out of your comfort zone and take one step forward at some point and just add something more to the equipping that you have so that when the opportunities present themselves, you know, I saw some statistics recently. I was at a conference and someone mentioned this. Just, they said in a recent survey in this country, 57% of the people in this country identified themselves as Christian. 9% of the, the people interviewed identified themselves as practicing Christians, and that was defined by the fact that they went to church at least twice a month. So there's not a huge number of people in this country that even by that definition are practicing Christians. But when they spoke to the people who said they were committed Christians, they said this, 41% of those were influenced to accept Christ in their own home. So there's the first place. Are you comfortable with witnessing and sharing the gospel with your children and with your family? My whole extended family eventually came into the kingdom of God because my uncle accepted Christ. And when he accepted Christ, he was filled with a passion for the fact that he wanted his family to have salvation through Jesus Christ. My father told me my uncle would come visiting, my dad would take his golf clubs and he would head out and he'd come back when my uncle was gone. But eventually, through prayer and witness and testimony, my immediate family, my aunts and uncles, my cousins, came to know Christ. Because he took it seriously. Are you witnessing in your family? Are you prepared to? Are you able to? Are you comfortable doing that? 41% of people who say in this country that they are committed Christians say that they came to that through the influence of their family. Another 41% were influenced to accept Christ by a friend or a work colleague. That's 82%. The rest, maybe through coming into a church cold off the street, maybe through going to a rally, maybe through an evangelical outreach. But can you see that the bulk of evangelical work done in this country over the last while has been done by individuals with individuals? You can do that. You can do that. All of us can do that. And I just want to challenge you to become a productive disciple. I don't want to lay an ounce of guilt on you because that would be so different from the character and the nature of God. He loves you. And you can sit there wherever you're sitting and you can sit in the same chair every week if you like and you can just come along and enjoy the fellowship and He will love you and we will love you. There is no condemnation. But wow. How about saying... I'm here because somebody did something.
I'm going to do something. I'm going to stop there, I think. Next week, we'll start looking at some of the practicalities just of the lifestyle that James advocates and the calling that he advocates. But I wanted to put it into a context. This is not contradicting the message of grace. The message of grace is one that I hold very dear because without it, I am lost. Without it, I am lost. If I have to stand before God on my performance, I'm in such deep trouble, such deep trouble. The grace of God sustains us. The grace of God is, the, is what we stand on when we stand before God, the love of God. You know, when we took communion this morning, I was just reminded again, the price that God paid for our salvation indicates the value that he places in us. For God so loved the world, that was the motivation. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is a complete promise. I'd like to say my motivation for wanting to be active and being a productive disciple should not be God's going to get me if I don't. It should be for Clive so loved the world. And that should be your motivation. For Talk so loved the world. For Ian so loved the world. That should be why we do things. But we should be doing them. We should be preparing ourselves. We should be stepping forward. I want to encourage you. The disciples went through a process. Just to recap, they observed. They learned incidentally. They sat under teaching. They put it into practice. Leadership developed. People were released. And eventually they were entrusted with a commission that has resulted in us knowing the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was what happened in that very first church. That's what happened in the Jerusalem church. And that's what we'd like to see happening in this church. And I invite you to be part of that.